You're listening to the weekly teaching podcast of South Hills Church in Corona, California. We hope that what you hear today inspires you to laugh, question, think, and grow. If you'd like to connect with us even further, hit us up online at southhills.org forward slash corona. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. The title of my message is Clean Your Plate or Don't. Clean Your Plate or don't. I, I grew up in a house where you had to clean your plate. Anybody like that? Like you and your family, it was like, we clean our plate. It was not a suggestion, okay? It was a mandate, right? It was upheld. It was enforced. It was a big deal. And I had nothing to do with whether or not you liked the food, okay, in my house. It was just like, you were served it. Somebody worked on it. It's on your plate. You're gonna eat it. And you're like, but I'm allergic. And they're like, eat it anyway, right? There was no such thing as allergies when I was a kid. It was like, but I'll die. And it's like, we're willing to take that chance. Eat the lima beans, right? My parents were just, they were all about it. They were hardcore. And they would, they would sit there because I, as a kid, I was stubborn. And my wife would say, not a lot has changed. But um, I, as a kid, I was just like, I believed I was more stubborn than my father. And that was a stupid thing to think because my dad was way more stubborn and probably still is, which my wife probably would not argue. And he would just sit there. I remember one time we had this stare down where the, the food was in front of me and I, I did not like it. I didn't want to finish it. And he was just like, we can just wait here. You're not going to bed until you finish this food. And I was just like, that's fine, whatever. And I just sat there. Two hours went by and he was like, well, it's your bedtime. And I'm like, hmm thinking like, I won, right? And so I went to my room and went to bed and I was just like, ha, I showed him. I got up the next morning. My dad had hidden all the cereal and he put out on the, the, the dinner table my dinner from the night before his breakfast. And then he came over and he was like, I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? He's like, eat it. You're not getting anything else until you finish this. And I was like, what? And he's like, pour some milk over it. And uh, I'm sure he went in his room and had a good laugh about that uh, while I was crying. But like, it, was, it was a big deal, is all I'm saying, in my family. You cleaned your plate. You had to. It was no choice. And in fact, there was this kind of weird little thing that my, my, my family sort of did was we almost always ate with, you know, bread or uh, biscuits or rolls or something on the table. And it wasn't unusual for one or both of my parents to actually at the end of the meal, like take a piece of bread or whatever and break it and then like sop up everything on the plate to where it was literally sparkling at the end. And because they did it, we started to do it. Like all of us in the family, we just started naturally doing it because they did it. And it was just kind of the way we were. It was just kind of what we did. Now, all this seemed really normal to me. And I wonder if you've had things like this in your family where it seems normal because it's all you know. And then you get around other people and you're like, oh, this is crazy. This is crazy, right? Like we are crazy. But at the time it seems normal because you just grew up in it. It's like, you don't really question it. It's just the way it was. And you know, for me, I didn't choose it. It was, it was definitely chosen for me, but it was enforced and it was reinforced and it just became second nature, like cleaning your plate and like, you know, like sopping it up with a biscuit, which then made a lot more sense later when my Aunt Bonnie would tell people, you're so cute, I would sop you up with a biscuit. <laughs> which a lot of my girlfriends never understood that. And I was like, I don't, you don't wanna see what she does with the biscuit, it's weird. And I don't know how that applies to you. 
But I didn't really think of this thing as something that I did. Like, I didn't think about it as what I did. I just thought about it as like who I was. Like, this is who we were as a family. And it did start getting to be a problem when I did start dating. I remember I was dating this girl in high school and uh, we invited her to come over for dinner and she ate dinner at our house and she committed the cardinal sin of dinner at my house. She did not clean her plate. And afterwards, my mom told me it was because she thought she was too good for us. And then I asked her about it later, the girl, and she just said, no, no. She actually told me at her house, you didn't have to clean your plate. And it blew my mind. (laughs) I never even entertained the thought that there were other homes where people didn't clean their plate. I didn't think that existed. I was like, are you guys even Christian? Like, I wasn't even sure. I didn't know, like, is this a whole different belief? I didn't know what to do with it, right? And, uh, and she was over, and she definitely looked at us peculiarly when we're all, you know, we taking the bread and wiping the plate clean. And I, I remember later, I got invited to her house for dinner, and she pulled me aside beforehand, and it was just like, listen, is this cool? And I know you're going to clean your plate, and all that's great can you not do the bread thing? It's weird. It's real weird. Or the thing with the spoon where you scrape everything to the bottom and then you get all the little juices and then like, I've seen you. I've seen you before. Sometimes you'll actually lick the plates. And I'm, I, I can tell that this is like embarrassing to her and I don't want to embarrass this girl. I want her to like me. I want her family to like me. And so I'm just like, yes, I will not do that. Of course I won't do that. And I did it. I definitely did it. I didn't even know I was doing it. You ever do that where you're like, just something is so entrenched in you, you just do it and you don't even know you're doing it until you're halfway done doing it and then someone's giving you eye the eye like, what are you doing? And you're like, uh, <laughs> joke, I'm joking is what I'm doing. This is dumb. Do you guys need to go to the bathroom and do you have bread? You know what I mean? Like I just, it was weird because it was like at this point, I, it was no longer something that like I really wanted to do, but I just, I couldn't, I couldn't help but do it. It was just, it was just the way that I was at that point. It was just ingrained in me. And I no longer liked that I did it, but I didn't know how not to do it. I, I felt like there was almost something inside me that was just like, you have to do this. And the reason why I bring this up is because I, I think we all have things in our lives uh, that, you know, maybe we don't like about ourselves, but, you know, they're a part of us. They they don't really represent the kind of person that we want to be. Maybe they represent like our past or like the person that we used to be, but, you know, we're different now and, and yet we can't seem to shake it. And, and the longer we live with it, the more we believe like, listen, this is just who I am. This is just the way that I am. And maybe for you, it's something that seems kind of silly to talk about because it's something like cleaning your plate. Or maybe for you, it's something else. Maybe for you, it's something that is much deeper. It's much darker. It has uh, a bigger sense of control over you. And because of what it is, there's a sense of shame that sort of comes with that thing. Maybe you've started to think like, I can't, I just can't not do it. But I don't, I don't want anybody to know about it, so I gotta hide it. And I just gotta hope that it never surfaces, it never comes back to haunt me. And that always works out super great, right? I think a lot of times with these pieces of ourselves that we, that we don't like, that they're not in alignment with who we wanna be, with who we feel like God has made us to be, but are still somehow a part of us, I think a lot of us wind up sort of praying, you know, crossing our fingers and praying that God will, you know, he'll forgive us for what we've done. But 
I think a lot of times we don't dare ask him to change us because I think for a lot of us, we're not sure we believe that he can. And I think there's evidence of this in our lives uh, with the way that we talk to ourselves or the way that we even, that we start to give people a glimpse of our inner monologue when we talk to them. We say things like, listen, I just, I, I am always gonna be like, I'm just, I've always been bad with money. I'm always gonna be bad with money. It's just the way that it is. I'm always gonna be fat. My body wants to be fat. I don't wanna be fat, but it does. It's fighting to be there. And it's just the way it is. Like, I'm never gonna get on top of this addiction. I I've tried, I've wanted to, I've set goals to. I just, it's not gonna happen. It's never gonna happen for me. I just can't help it. I can't help that I'm really defensive and suspicious all the time of everyone and everything, okay? It's just the way that I am, okay? And if you wanna be around me, you're just gonna have to deal with the fact that I'm always gonna be suspicious that you're plotting my murder. It's just the way that I am. I can't help it. I'm just an angry person. I just don't trust people. It's just, it's just how I am. It's just the way that I am. And the more we, we think this, the more we believe it. And the more we believe it, the truer it becomes. And sometimes something that, that really isn't intrinsically who we are, that we've learned that's imprinted on us at some point in our life, it begins to follow us. And the more we repeat to ourselves these kind of, you know, fixed thoughts of like, this is just how I am and how I'm going to be forever, the more the prophecy fulfills itself. And I think in a lot of our minds, this is why we're like, this is why I need the grace of God. I need the grace of God in my life so that he can keep forgiving me for being who I am, but I don't want to be. And that's what our relationship is. Like just me being like, oh God. I am, I, am, I am so sorry that I am as horrible as you made me to be and then won't let me change out of being. And so if you could just forgive me for that, that would be great. And we keep doing the same thing over and over again. But here's the question I wanna ask you as we wrap this series today. What if the grace of God is way better than that? What if the good news is actually way gooder? That's a word than just the fact that God wants to forgive you? What if there's something else about grace that takes us beyond just being able to, to shirk off the weight of the shame that sin brings into our lives? And I wanna sort of wrestle with this idea today by looking at the story from the life of Jesus. It's a very famous story uh, from the life of Jesus. It's found in John chapter eight. And um, I'm actually going to, to kind of speed through the majority of the story because I really wanna focus just on the last line of the story. A line that when most people read it or tell it, they just sort of skip over because they don't know what to do with it. It feels awkward to them. And so I wanna just take the awkward line and spend most of the time on that line. John chapter eight, verse three, it says this. As Jesus was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They're trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Isn't this, isn't this all of our worst fear, right? That like, that someone would figure out 
this thing that you do that you hide away from everyone, this thing that you think or this behavior that you engage in or this secret battle that you're fighting. And they would grab hold of this thing and they would drag it out in front of everyone and put it on display. Like, isn't that what we are most afraid of? You ever have that dream where like, you're just walking along and everything's great. And then you look down and realize you are naked. You are completely <laughs> naked. And you're like, ah, why am I grocery shopping naked? And then it ends up not being a dream. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so you're like, where is this going? What's weird is psychologists tell us that we almost all have this dream. This, this, this internalized fear of everyone seeing and knowing everything, especially the stuff we typically cover up. And they, they drag this woman in front of Jesus and they throw her on the ground naked. It looks something like this. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to show you a naked picture. Are you guys crazy? <laughs> what kind of church do you think this is? But this really isn't about nudity, right? This is about exposure, this is about everyone knowing, everyone seeing, everyone getting behind the wall where you hide everything. That's what we're being shown in this story is happening to her. And the saddest part is, this isn't even about her, right? When you read through this story, they're just trying to use her to trap Jesus. She's collateral damage. Destroying her entire life is a means to an end. Like it's some sort of like toxic mixture of religious hypocrisy and mob mentality. And they just go after this woman and they're gonna destroy her. Aren't you relieved that nobody's like that anymore? Like people don't like target people and just destroy their lives. This is, like, this is cancel culture to an extreme. That's what this is. That's what this reminds me of. Like you did a horrible thing. Everyone needs to know about it. And that thing that you did or have done or are doing completely sums you up. And because you did that, and because I have proof or at least my version of proof that you did it, your life deserves to be over. You don't deserve a future. And this isn't just something that people used to do. It's something that people still do, right? Why do we do this? I think part of the reason why we attack weakness in others is to avoid the weakness in ourselves. And a lot of times we do this because I either, I either you know, don't want to or I don't know how to address my own issues. And so I'm going to attack yours. It's a way of me not having to deal with any of my problems if I always have a, a, a magnifying glass on your problems. If I can keep shifting the spotlight over to you, I never have to face, acknowledge, or deal with me. It says in this story that Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. They, they kept demanding an answer and so he stood up again and he said, okay, all right but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. And there's a, a lot of speculation about what it is he wrote. A lot of um, scholars believe that he probably wrote something that alluded to in some sort of generalized way what, what maybe some of their sins were, what some of their weaknesses were. It's as if Jesus is saying with this, these words and with these actions, like, you wanna know the truth? You all have weaknesses. The difference is you're still hiding yours and hers are all out in the open. 
That's the big difference. It's not that she's got weaknesses and you don't. It's not that she has sin and you don't. It's that you're still in hiding and she is now completely out in the open. This is the real difference between the two of you. What if, what if I, what if I you know, exposed all of your hidden habits and I punished you for them with the same level of harshness that you want to punish her? What is he doing? He's like reflecting back to them what they look like. You ever get wrapped up in something and you don't even realize what you're doing? And you have someone that just sort of like slows down the situation and sort of holds up a mirror to you and they show you what you look like, how you're acting, how you're talking, how it's coming off. And it's almost like they're, they're trying to, to just slow you down, get you to zoom out and think about, look in on your own life as if to say like, is, do you see what you're doing? Do you see who you're being? Is this really who you wanna be? Is this really how you want people to treat you? This is what Jesus is doing with these actions. This is Jesus being confrontational. Do you know that grace is confrontational? A lot of us, we don't associate that idea with grace, but grace can be confrontational. The difference is when God confronts, it it looks less like a megaphone and more like a mirror. And this, I think, is what we think about when we think about like some sort of confrontation, especially in some sort of like a, uh, a God fashion, right? We imagine like the, the person on the street corner with the megaphone, right, yelling at people that they're going to hell and that they're like, and like, man, every time I see that, there's always a line of people just being like, thank you so much. Oh my God, thank you. Can I, oh, I just need, I'm really, I'm open to this moment, right? No, never happens. And I've never seen it. We don't tend to really respond well to that. And this really isn't the picture we have of Jesus. Jesus confronts more like a mirror. These moments in which he's just like, let me show you what you're doing. Are you okay with this? Is this who you want to be? Is this the life you want to live? Is this the best you think you can do? This is what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's not yelling. He's not pointing people out. He's not shaming them in front of a crowd. He's helping people see themselves clearly. This is the grace of God. It helps us to see ourselves accurately. You see, grace doesn't turn people's evil tactics against them. It uses different tactics altogether. Because grace understands that the way you do something is just as important as what you're doing. And a lot of us, we see gracelessness and our impulse is to attack the gracelessness of others in a graceless way. But if that's what you're doing, you are now part of the problem. Like, I don't like the graceless way you're treating people. So I'm gonna treat you gracelessly in return. But your gracelessness is evil and mine's good somehow. What? It makes no sense. And yet this is, this is the methodology that we all attach ourselves to, but it has nothing to do with who God is. And sometimes this annoys us. You ever get annoyed with God that he's not confronting people in the way you think they ought to be confronted? Jesus, what are you doing? You're just writing a generic word in the sand? Are you serious? Call him out, right? I mean, that's what I want to see. Just be like, oh, 
Bartholomew, really? <laughs> well, I know some stuff. I'm not even gonna write a generic word in the sand. I'm just gonna tell everybody out loud right now. That's what we want. And I think oftentimes God doesn't confront people the way we wish he would confront people because I think God's goals and our goals sometimes aren't, in, aren't connected. I think sometimes they're opposites. I think sometimes we want God to confront people in a certain way because what we're seeking is revenge, but God is seeking redemption. That requires a different sort of approach. We want somebody to pay. God wants to put somebody's life back together. It says that when the accusers, they, they heard Jesus say this, they saw him do it, they slipped away one by one until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. You know, nobody wants to be exposed. And they're like, this guy knows things. We don't know how he knows. Everyone wants to keep their facade intact. And, and here's what's really, really interesting to me. Jesus lets them. He lets them maintain a facade that he and they know is a facade. And he lets them walk away. In verse 10, it says, then Jesus stood up and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. I don't condemn you. What a powerful thought that God in human form is looking in the face of someone and just saying, I don't condemn you. Uh, to, get, to condemn is to judge, to pronounce guilt upon, to, to heap punishment on someone. And he's just like, that's not what I'm here to do. And here's what's even crazier about this. Like, it's not that she didn't do what they say she did. She did it. It's that she doesn't need to perpetually punish herself for her sin because Jesus is going to permanently pay for her sin. And I think we don't fully understand this as she doesn't, that God has already permanently paid for your sin. That when you come to God and you're just like, I'm, I'm broken, I'm messed up. I have these weird impulses and drives. I, I have these things that I want to do that inside myself, I'm like, that's not even who I am, who you made me to be. It's actually sabotaging me. But I keep going in that direction. That God has paid the price for that. And I think for some of us, we're just like, we are still perpetually punishing ourselves for that thing in our past. We're just beating ourselves up over it, over and over again. And I think a lot of times God is looking at us like, I already paid for it in full. Why are you still making payments? This is what he's saying to this woman. He's giving her a clean slate with which to design a new life. And that's what grace does. Grace doesn't chain people's potential to their past. Grace gives people the gift of a new start, of a clean slate. In Romans chapter eight, verse one, the apostle Paul is writing a letter to the very first Christians, like trying to convey this same idea. And he says, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. This idea is that like the thing that God offers this woman, he's offering you to. He's offering everyone. And we don't have to be weighed down by what we've done. And this is good news. And in fact, it's such good news 
that this is usually where we stop reading. We're just like, that's great. That's good. You know what? That's good enough for now. We'll watch the next episode later. I'm content, right? And in a lot of our minds, that's the end of the story. But Jesus actually, he says one more thing. He says uh, another thing that I think is actually the most challenging and controversial and confusing thing that he says in this exchange. In John chapter eight, verse 11, the last thing that he says to her is he says, after he says, then I don't condemn you either. Then he says, go and sin no more. And some of us were like, mm, I don't know about that part. Now, is that piece in the earliest text? Because I don't know. I don't like, that makes me feel uncomfortable, right? Why, why would he, what, what, what's it? Like that sounds, I mean, where's the grace in that? But I think if we edit out this piece of the passage, I think we miss one of the most profound aspects of grace. I, I think when we look at this through our lens from where we are at in life, we, we see it as a command. But she would have seen it as a profound vote of confidence. Because in her mind, in her culture, this sentence, she didn't even see as an option. What do you mean go and sin no more? <laughs> There's no, I'm gonna go back into the only life I know, into the only habit patterns I'm familiar with. I'm gonna go back and be and do the only things that are available to me. And maybe this doesn't make much sense to you, but I can tell you, like, in her culture, once a woman was labeled an adulterer, her life was over. She was stigmatized, and all hope of getting married or settling down or having a family or being a respected member of the community, like, all this was out the window. And it's very probable at this time in, in history that she had a kid or two, and since, you know, uh, no one wanted her, not anymore. She's gonna to have to raise them by herself. But the problem with that is that inside of this culture, women didn't have a lot of options and single stigmatized women had even less options, which means there was no real jobs for her. And so a lot of women in this situation would do the only thing they knew to do, which was either turn to prostitution or sell themselves into slavery in order to eke out some survival and take care of their family because there were no other options. And this is where this woman's frame of mind is. Not being condemned in this moment is best case scenario. That's as good as it gets. But Jesus is looking at her and saying, no, 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 the grace of God is actually better than that. I know you think there are no other options, but I think there are. In fact, when I look at you, I see a better future for you than you can even imagine for yourself. Go out and grab it. You see, the thing that, that Jesus wants her to understand that the reason why he reiterates this to her is that you know, people don't tend to do better until they believe that they can be better. And in her mind, she didn't believe that she could be any better, any different, that there was no other way to be. Jesus is saying, I don't, I don't condemn you. You don't need to keep beating yourself up about this. Your life isn't over. This thing doesn't have to define you. And, and also, you seem unhappy. And I want to tell you, you don't have to live like this anymore. You've got a clean slate. Don't waste it. Go out and do something with it that you can be proud of. And here's the, the whole truth about 
grace. That, that grace covers you, but it doesn't cover up for you. It actually allows you to address your issues instead of avoiding them. And this is the full gift of the grace of God. Like grace doesn't just grant you forgiveness for what you did. It actually gives you a fighting chance to not have to go back and do it anymore. Paul says it this way. Uh, he, he writes this letter to the, the Romans. Later on, verse 11 says this, that the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he'll give you, uh, he'll give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, anybody who believes in a place of their faith in Jesus, listen to this, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. What a profound idea. And the reason why this is so profound to me is the opposite of how I feel a lot of the time. What about you? Like, don't you have the sense of like, <laughs> I don't know, Jesus. I feel like I do have an obligation to do what my sinful nature is urging me to do. Do you know how powerful these urges are? Sometimes I'm in the middle of that and I'm like, I didn't even know I was doing it. It just happens. It's such a part of me, I don't know where I end and it begins. This is the opposite of often how we think and what we tell ourselves, but I'm always gonna be like this, but I'm never gonna be able to break away from. I, I can't help it. I just, I just, this is just the way that I am. This is just who I am. But you don't have to be. Because grace offers us the opportunity to, to work on our weaknesses without being defined by them. And I think what gets in the way of us believing this fully are, are two pervasive perspectives um, that, that, that kind of find their way into Christian circles. That either, maybe either God doesn't condemn me, and so I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing that is destructive, and, and, and I'm going I'm to keep doing it because it doesn't really matter because I'm not going to hell. Or the other thought is, God is really angry at me and I, I have to fix this thing about me so that he will love and accept me. And what this story is pointing out to us is that neither is reality. Because Jesus actually seemed to think that you could not condemn and not condone. That you could actually be compassionate and confrontational at the exact same time. He's dismissing the idea that everything is as black and white as we wish it were. That everything is all or nothing. That everything is one or the other. He's holding two truths up at the exact same time and giving us the ability to choose our own destiny. He's telling us at the same exact time. Number one, I don't condemn you and you can change if you want to. Both are true. And there's a third thing that's true that I think is even more profound. And, and, and it's this, in sending her away, even if you don't, I still love you. That's the grace of God. That's the scandal of grace. 
And maybe you're wondering like, oh, if Jesus doesn't condemn her, <laughs> then why would he challenge her to change? And why would she even try and change? And I think the reason for that is because she is in a place where her life is not working for her. It's just what she's settled into because it's everything, it's all that she thinks is, is available to her. And he wants her to know that she doesn't have to resign herself to being controlled by this thing, by this stigma, by this way of being, by this way of functioning. That you don't have to go out and, and sell yourself into this set of behaviors because you think that that's all you can do all you can be. Don't limit yourself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul writes on behalf of God these words of God to us. He says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And God is saying, like, listen, there are certain things that you want to do and you want to be that I'm calling you to do and to be that are different than you've ever been and different than you've ever done. But you will not be able to step into them without my help. But here's the good news. I'm here to help you. And to me, I feel both enraged at the people who storm in I throw this woman at the feet of Jesus, but I'm also sad for them because it's just such a shame to me that none of the accusers stuck around to hear her say, to hear Jesus like point this out. They stood in that environment long enough to realize that they too had weakness and then they walked away feeling ashamed, hoping that they could just keep hiding it. But she walked away with a better realization. She walked away understanding that God knows everything about me, that he doesn't condemn me, and he is empowering me to change the trajectory of my story. And the truth is, it's the same thing that God wants to reveal to you today, that he knows everything about you, that he doesn't condemn you, and that he wants to empower you to change the trajectory of your story, that you don't have to be stuck where you are. We don't know what happened to this woman after this. Like there's no, there's no more to this story. I like to think that, that she began to see herself like Jesus saw her and that she leveraged his power to begin to make changes in her life. And she ended up living a totally different life than she thought was possible inside her culture. And, and I think if she did, she didn't do it all at once. I, I, think, I think if it happened, it was probably this process of like baby steps of like little changes stacked on top of other little changes that all stemmed from knowing that she was loved by God no matter what. And it was probably, like a lot of us, it was probably this process of like relapse and recovery of a bunch of starts and stops and then restarts of stumbling and failing and falling short and then getting back up and taking hold of God's hand and making her way forward again without shame, without condemnation, holding her head up high. And today as we wrap this series, I just, I want you to think about this in the context of your life. What's the thing 
that when you think about it, brings the most guilt and shame into your life. And not because there's nothing wrong with it, but everyone else thinks there is. What's that thing that the reason why you feel guilt and shame about it is because you know at the core of it, it's not who you are meant to be. It's not who you were made to be. But it's, it's, it's such a part of you. You feel like you can't not do it. You can't not be it. You feel like I can't help it. And I want you to picture that thing in your mind. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know the same thing that Jesus wanted her to know. And number one, God does not condemn you. And number two, that you can change if you want to. That God is with you, that grace is on your side, that you don't have to stay stuck in your pain in your anger, in your limited thinking, in the role that you're in that you don't wanna be in. You don't have to stay stuck in that habit, in that addiction. You don't have to stay where you have been. In fact, the good news gets even better that even if you don't change, God still loves you. That's the good news. That's the whole of the good news. And I think a lot of us want to grab hold of the no condemnation, but I got to tell you, it's so much better than that. Why would you want to limit the grace of God to, it's a good thing I'm forgiven, but I'm always going to be like this. What if the grace of God that he wants to extend to you today is not only don't I condemn you, Let's move forward together. And what if this isn't just something that God wants to give you? What if this is something that God is wanting you to extend to the people around you? The grace to have potential in the future that's not at all chained to what's happened in the past. I think it has the power to change everything. Would you bow your heads across this room? I wanna close by just praying this into each of our lives today. God, I am thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for the way in which you forgive us. You don't heap more guilt and shame upon us, but you lift the weight off of our shoulders that you don't expect us to perpetually punish ourselves for the mistakes we've made, for the wrong that we've done, for the cycles we've gotten caught up in. But God, you, you have given us something better. And not only don't you condemn us, but you don't condemn us with any strings attached. You allow us to walk out of that moment and never change. And, 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 and you still give us all of your love. But God, there are certain things in our lives that we know, we can feel, we can sense are holding us back from being our true selves. And God, I pray that you would give us the belief that we can follow you into the future and grab hold of something greater. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's message from South Hills Church in Corona, California. We hope that you will continue to connect with us here online. 
We would love to hear your story, feel your questions, and learn how this ministry has changed your life. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching South Hills Corona.